Mark 1, 21 through 39. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among one another, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he prepared and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searching, searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Okay, let me go ahead and pray, and we will get to work on this passage of Scripture Father, thank you again for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we could remember um, the Passover. We thank you, Lord God, that you gave us that picture of the Passover, the lamb who was slaughtered to cover the doors. And in that way, Lord, you have protected us. And we thank you for that. We thank you that the angel of death, that the living God who is a just God, um, passed over those who are covered in the blood of Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, for that picture. We thank you even more for the reality that that picture illustrates, and that is your propitiation, the propitiation that Christ made on the cross because of you bearing the wrath of God. We now are free, and we are forgiven. And we pray, Lord God, that um, you would open our eyes to see this text for what it is. We pray that we would see you, Lord Jesus, and that we would rightly understand ourselves in light of what uh, these realities are that we're going to be looking at tonight. We pray that it would shape discipleship, it would shape our understanding of what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. And we just ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would confront us where we need confronting, that you would lead us to repentance where we need that. Lord, that you would encourage us and affirm us, Lord, where things are showing evidences of grace. So we give this time to you. We give this sermon to you. We pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. 
Okay, until 1971, <clears throat> the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. This means that every dollar represented a set amount of gold, and the gold standard was a good idea because um, an American dollar is actually a piece of cotton and linen. That's what it ma is made out of, cotton and linen. Uh, so in itself, uh, an American dollar is not worth anything. It's, un it's, it's worthless. Um, but when it's backed by gold, which is inherently uh, valuable, right? Gold in itself, as it stands, just as, a, as an object, is valuable throughout the world. Um, so when it is uh, uh, supporting or backing... Uh, this 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 thing, this dollar is representing something that actually is very valuable. So um, when I read this section of scripture and considered the ministry of Jesus, I thought of the gold standard and here's why. Jesus has a preaching ministry and a doing ministry. All of the teachings of Jesus are supported by actions as well. Jesus teaches with authority, but he also demonstrates that authority when he casts out demons and heals the sick and does other things. James tells us that we should become not only hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. And he also warns us that religion without action is a lot like, well, cotton and linen. Notice that when Jesus enters Capernaum in verse 21, he preaches in the synagogue and he casts out a demon. And in verse 38, when he moves from this town, he preaches again in the synagogues and then he casts out demons. That's obviously a theme in this chapter or this passage of scripture. And so Jesus doesn't just say that he has authority. He actually demonstrates that he has authority. And he does so against the backdrop of Satan. He does so against the backdrop of sickness. He does so against the backdrop of scribes. And he does so against the backdrop of seekers. All right, so we're going to look at these four things, these four different categories. And I want us to see um, how these things pose a threat to the kingdom of God, how Jesus overcomes them and demonstrates his authority over them, and how it impacts us being disciples, how it impacts becoming a true disciple of Christ. So let's break that down into the four categories. Number one, Jesus demonstrates authority over Satan. This is the most obvious of oppositions that Jesus faced. We are told that Jesus encounters a man with an unclean spirit. And in Old Testament terms, an unclean spirit would have denoted a spirit, a spirit unsubmitted or rebellious to the divine. And we read this in verse 23 and 24. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I used to think, uh, I used to read this and I used to think, you know, even Satan... Even Satan has a shred of sensibility about him. Even Satan has a shred of respect for the divinity of Christ. I know who you are, he says. Have you come here to destroy us? We know our place before you, even before you, Jesus. It's actually not what's going on here at all. While Satan is correct about one thing, Jesus is the Holy One of God. That doesn't mean that he has even an ounce or even a shred of an ounce or one drop of an ounce of respect for him as such. So what are we supposed to do with this situation? How should we read into this? Well, R.C. Sproul has something to say about this that really actually tells us what's going on here. Um, R.C. Sproul, or as you know, I like to refer to him as R.C. Sprola. You guys ever had R.C. Cola? R.C. Sproul? See what I did there? R.C. Sproul, 
R.C. Sprola, as I like to call him. <clears throat> he says this, What is happening here? We gain a clue from the Old Testament account of Jacob's wrestling with an angel. Genesis 32, 24-29. After they had wrestled all night, Jacob demanded a blessing, which prompted the angel to ask his name. When the angel blessed him, Jacob asked the angel's name, but he would not give it. Revealing one's name to an adversary was seen as an act of submission. So when Jacob asked the angel for his name, he was asking him to submit. That is why the demon revealed Jesus' name. It was one last attempt to get rid of him. The demon unveiled his identity, thinking that if he named him properly, he could defeat him and bring him under his submission. So when Jesus says, or when, I'm sorry, when the demon, when Satan says, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God, what he's essentially doing is, ha, I got you. You just submitted to me. I'm in charge. He's trying to pull a fast one on him. By the way, does Satan have even one shred of an ounce of respect for Christ? No, he does not. Satan is only purely evil, and he only intends and devises evil all the time. There is no benevolence in him whatsoever. And Jesus, you see, is not fooled by this. He's not fooled. He says, nah, I see what you're trying to do there. Nice try. Verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. And, that they, uh, and so, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. You see, Jesus isn't just teaching with authority. He demonstrates his authority over even the supernatural realm. The inbreaking of God's kingdom uh, in Jesus first begins, according to Mark, not in the human arena, but in the cosmos, in the cosmic arena, um, uh, in the supernatural, in order to bind the strong man who exercises power over that um, order. And that's in Mark 3.27, that if you want to bind, you bind the strong man, and this is Satan. Jesus has this epic showdown with his adversary, and he binds Satan. He's the strong man, and he undoes his authority. And the Bible helps us to make sense of this world, perhaps a point of application. What we can say, when we think about evil in this world, and we think about the activity of Satan and his demons, right? We think about this evil oftentimes in our world, and when we encounter it, goes beyond our human ability to explain it. Um, uh, let's see here, uh, The Silence of the Lambs, the movie or the book. Uh, I don't recommend watching it unless you enjoy having nightmares and wetting yourself, right? It's a very, very scary movie. But it's premised on this idea that this FBI agent is um, interviewing this Hannibal Lecter, the horrifying serial killer. And at one point, she asks him something along the lines of, what happened to you that caused you to be turned out this way? And really, the question implies, you know what? Um, there has to be something. There has to be some way we can connect the dots and explain away scientifically why you would come to this horrible evil. And you know what's interesting? His response, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You cannot reduce me to a set of influences. Now, so what's he, what's he saying here, essentially? I think what's going on here, what this illustrates, 
is that science simply does not have all the answers to all the things in the world, including evil like this. Science cannot explain this away. Within the natural realm, you cannot explain certain things. There is evil out there that transcends our human ability to understand it, to explain it away. One has to admit that there are influences that transcend the natural order. It cannot be reduced to your upbringing. You can't simply say, you know what, this guy, he just had a bad upbringing. He probably wasn't loved by his father, or he grew up under power lines, or something like that. There is an evil realm. There is something that transcends the natural order. Jesus has over overcome Satan, and he demonstrates over authority over him. And those who are in Christ, you see, are now under transferred under out of the domain of darkness, and they are transferred from out underneath the, the, the dominion of Satan. They are protected by the rule and the reign of Christ. And that is good news for believers in Christ and for his disciples. And number two, Jesus demonstrates authority over sickness. In verse 29 through 34, we see that Jesus heals Simon's mother, but he, uh, mother-in-law, I'm sorry, but he also heals many, many other people as well who are sick. And I would rather not get into this point all that much. In fact, um, I don't want to say a whole lot about it, but I also didn't want to avoid it because it's so clearly there. At minimum, we can say this, that Satan, or I'm sorry, Jesus demonstrates authority over the supernatural, but he also demonstrates authority over the natural as well. He is, has the ability to, to, to cast out demons, but he also has the ability to heal the sick, to enter people's bodies with all the physical makeup of your bones and flesh and so on. And he is the great physician. He is the great healer of the natural as well. So Jesus demonstrates authority over the supernatural when he casts out demons. He also demonstrates authority over the natural realm as well when he heals the sick. Number three, point number three. Jesus demonstrates authority over scribes in the synagogues. I'm on the roll with the S's here. Have you noticed that? We got Satan, we got sickness, we got scribes and synagogues in their synagogues. And this point is admittedly a little bit less obvious, but let me break it down. Now, uh, first, let me ask the question, who were the scribes? Who were the scribes? What are they? Scribes were the experts in the Torah who were capable of issuing binding decisions on its interpretation. So they had authority. They were authoritative when it came to matters of spiritual religion and the law of God, how people should practice their religion and respond to God. They were authoritative in this way. With, uh, with the growth of the synagogue, scribes were actually, uh, they became teachers of the Torah, and they were honored with the title of rabbi. And surely you've heard rabbi as you read the New Testament, as you read the Gospels. This would be a common term that you've probably heard. Scribes were also legal jurists, and they combined the office of Torah professor, teacher, and moralist, um, and civil lawyer. Um, and the first seats in the synagogues were given to the scribes. When they entered a room, everybody would rise to their feet in honor and respect of the scribes. So they were, had a very privileged place. They were very well respected. They even carried a measure of authority. They really did. But here's an interesting, uh, look at verse 23 with me, if you would. It says this. Immediately, there were in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. What am I seeing there? Synagogues and scribes represented, we could say, the religious authority of the day. And we see that Jesus was distancing himself from that religious authority already. How do we see that? Well, it says, immediately there was in their, their synagogue, 
It wasn't Jesus's. It wasn't our synagogue. It was theirs. You see the distance that Jesus is putting between himself and his rule and his kingdom and his religion, we could probably say, and theirs and their leadership. It's not my synagogue. That's yours. That's theirs. Here's a quote. Mark and Mark, both the synagogue and scribes, will, for the most part, play oppositional roles to Jesus. Synagogues will appear another half dozen times in Mark as places where demons are present and where there is antagonism from religious leaders, hardness of heart and persecution. The general antagonism of synagogues and scribes thus foreshadows the coming rejection of Jesus from both the temple and religious leaders in Jerusalem. So this is why we see the scribes in the measure of authority that they had. They were actually against Christ. They were actually antagonistic towards him. And we see Jesus demonstrate his authority over the supernatural. We see him demonstrate his authority over the natural realm. But we also see him demonstrate his authority over the spiritual and religious realm as well. When he has authority over the scribes. Because look at what the people said. What is this? A new teaching with authority? Do you see that they're comparing Jesus to the scribes? Do you see that they're doing that? doesn't actually mention the scribes here, but that's, what, that, that's their base. That's their default. That's their point of comparison. Hey, we know the scribes. We know what they do, but you're utterly different. You're utterly unlike them. You're totally different. You have a, a kind of authority that we have not seen in them. I think that's what they're essentially saying. And I think Jesus perhaps is essentially saying, you know what? There, there's a new sheriff in town. I have authority over the cosmic arena. I have authority over the religious arena as well. And I actually think the scribes were starting to see this. They understood our authority is being challenged here, which is partly why they put him to death, isn't it? So Jesus is authoritative over the scribes as well. And to be a disciple of Christ, you must allow Jesus to exercise all authority over your spiritual life. To be a disciple of Christ. Many people are very spiritual. This is nothing new. There's all different kinds of spiritualities out there, isn't there not? Is there not? But they are spiritual, perhaps, in terms, in, uh, uh, spiritual on their terms, I should say. And they are spiritual in a way that scoffs, perhaps, at the, any authority that Jesus has over them. The true disciple of Christ allows Jesus, and Jesus alone, to be the author of your life. This means everything that you do and everything that you believe must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. If you do yoga, I'm going to use yoga as an illustration. You know, there's a spiritual aspect to yoga. What does it teach? Essentially, it says, empty your mind. And then that way you can kind of enter into the spirituality. You can enter into this peace. You can enter into this harmonious thing. You can have true peace. This is a kind of spirituality. Well, what does Scripture say? What does Christ say? He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is praiseworthy, think about these things. Christianity, Jesus, teaches us to be truly spiritual is to fill your mind with truth, not to empty your mind. So when we think about that, we think about yoga being, I think, is kind of a false spirituality. It's the one that sets itself up against, perhaps, Christianity. Jesus has different things to say about it. And the true disciple of Christ surrenders themselves to everything that Christ has to say about everything. There's no part of your life. There's no part of my life. There's no part of any life that Christ does not have claims over. So in order to be a true disciple of Christ, we surrender, we yield ourselves to 
the absolute authority over, that Jesus has over our religious life and everything that we do and think. Okay, point number four. Jesus demonstrates authority over seekers and sideshows. Okay, the S's do not stop. I did this for your benefit, by the way, right? I did this for your benefit, so you can memorize this or have an easier time uh, remembering this. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is seeking you. That's really what the Greek word there is. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Notice Simon Peter says, everyone is looking for you. And then what does Jesus do? He says, okay, let's get out of here. This is a very peculiar uh, decision, by the way. Do you guys find this kind of interesting? Everyone's looking for you. Okay, let's leave. I mean, could you imagine if we post something on our Facebook account? You know what? It got 8,000 likes and 2,000 shares. Oh, you know what we should do? Let's cancel our Facebook account. You know, we don't want these people showing up here. We don't want them, you know, like needing counseling. We're going to have to like, you know, teach the gospel to them and disciple them. No, that would be kind of ridiculous, wouldn't it? Why in the world would Jesus leave? Why would he say, oh my goodness, everyone's coming after me. The crowds are coming after me. Let's leave. You would kind of think, oh, all right, some real ministry here. I'm getting a following. This is good. I like it. But he takes off. The Greek word behind looking for, zetin, occurs 10 times in Mark, and in each instance it carries negative connotations. In, uh, interference and obstruction of his ministry, disbelief and faithlessness, and attempts to kill Jesus. Seeking connotes an attempt to determine and control rather than to submit and follow. In this respect, seeking for Jesus is not a virtue in the Gospel of Mark, nor are clamoring crowds a sign of success or aid to ministry. Here, as elsewhere in Mark, enthusiasm is not to be confused with faith. Indeed, it can oppose faith, actually. So the disciples, actually, they, you know what? They want to hop on and they want to capitalize on his fame. They really, they like this idea. But Jesus sees it perhaps as a threat to his ministry. And that's why I think he leaves. But even his own disciples, do you see this? Even his own disciples, they don't see really what's going on here. They don't see this for what it really is. Jesus came as the son of God to offer salvation. And while his miracles prove that he was the son of God, and while they demonstrated the kingdom of God was breaking into this earth, you see, there was this risk of this whole thing becoming a sideshow. When the crowds came to him for what they could get from him, this was threatening or being threatened to become a sideshow. And Jesus saw this dynamic. They're not coming here to follow me. They're coming here to get stuff. They're coming here to use me for their ends. I think that's why he leaves. And the church always faces this temptation to become a seeker sideshow. And I'm not talking about seeker-friendly churches that we would perhaps look at and maybe look down our noses upon. I'm not talking about that at all. I don't think that's what Mark has in mind here at all. I think that he has you and me in mind. I think perhaps this passage has you and me in mind. And our propensity to want to approach God on our terms and not his terms. 
we should confess and repent of the way, repent of the ways that, that we want and we only want Jesus for the kickbacks and the benefits that he provides. And that way we are a seeker. And I realize that in my own life, where this is where the rubber hits the road in my own life, that when I'm tempted to doubt God's goodness, it's usually an indication that I've slipped into the heart of the seeker. My struggle with God is typically owing to the ways that I've attempted to determine what my life should be and then to hold God hostage to it. Have you ever done that with God? Have you ever said, you know what, it should look this way? And when it's not, why haven't you done it for me? This is determining, as it says here, it's an attempt to determine and control. The seeker determines or attempts to determine and to control. And when things don't go the way that I want, I want to hold God hostage to my view of what my reality should be. Here, God, didn't you get the memo? You're in my life to give me this and that and that. And this is not the heart of true discipleship at all. This is the heart of the seeker that Mark talks about here. So, Jesus demonstrates authority over Satan. He demonstrates authority over sickness. He demonstrates authority over the scribes in their synagogues. He demonstrates authority over the seekers and their sideshows. And he keeps it focused on what the kingdom of God is truly all about, and that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who have come to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death to offer salvation. So let me ask this in conclusion. What is the heart of true discipleship? What, we can, what can we learn from our, for ourselves? Well, the heart of true discipleship is to submit and to surrender to Jesus. There's two more S's for you. All right? Let's not become like Satan, for sure. Not like the scribe. Not like the seeker. But the one who surrenders and submits. That's the right way to respond to this Christ who is in authority over Satan, sickness, scribes, seekers. And we can say this. All of them have this one thing in common, perhaps. They all attempt to say, essentially say, I know who you are. I know who you are. They try to manipulate Christ and to bring him under their control. Do you see that? All of these things have their, that same quality about them. When you really boil it down, it's the same effort. It's the same heart. It's the same mentality. I want you to serve me on my terms. I want to domesticate you. I want to put you in a box, and you're here for my purposes. And this is not the heart of true discipleship. Here's a quote, Tim Keller. Mark shows us that Jesus taught about life with original rather than derived authority. He didn't just clarify something that they already knew or simply interpret the scriptures the way that he, the, the way the teachers of the law did. His listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author. Isn't that something? Christ came to, into this world, and when he starts doing his ministry, those who were truly listening to him and those who saw him for who he really was started to gain the sense, this is the author of my life. I'm completely surrendered to him. That's the only way I could relate to this one. This one. It's the only way. The true disciple of Christ is submitted to Christ as the author of their lives. Is Christ the author of your life? Are you letting him write this story? Is he the one who's in control of the book? 
Have you learned that true freedom only comes and is only discovered when you're totally and utterly surrendered to Christ? It's the only pathway to true freedom. And let me suggest this. It isn't enough. I gave this a lot of thought, and I wondered, okay, what do we do with this here? And how do I connect this to the gospel? And I think this, this is maybe how. It isn't enough that Jesus shows authority over Satan, sickness, scribes, and seekers. I mean, that theoretically should be enough. We should look at that and say, oh, gee, I ought to, I ought to surrender my life to Christ. He ought to be my author. But you know what? I'm going to suggest to you it isn't enough. It isn't enough. There's one more S in the, in the picture, and it's sin. Christ, it is, it, Christ is authoritative over sin as well. And how do we see Jesus' authority exercised over sin? Well, he can forgive it. That's how he has authority over sin. He has the right to forgive sin. And let me suggest this. It's only when you recognize Christ who has authority over sin in your life that you can truly surrender to him. And here's why. Because these passages tell us how incredibly unfitting it is to challenge the authority of Christ. Yet, who of us can stand up here and say, I'm not guilty of this? Not a single one of us, right? I mean, pre-Christ, of course, but even in Christ. How many of you guys have never, in, even in Christ, have never warred against Jesus' authority? You have. So we are guilty of great sin. And in fact, the greater that we see the authority of Christ, the greater our sin actually is. But Jesus has authority over it, and he forgives it. And as the true disciple of Christ recognizes how guilty they are, but also how forgiven they are, how great of an offense that they are against God, they realize that they are forgiven. And, and you know what? When we realize that we are forgiven, we start to recognize, you know what? This Jesus, I can trust him. I can trust him. And you know how I can trust him? Because of my great sin. It's very great. There's not a single one of us that could, wouldn't say, yes, I have, I have thumbed my nose against God. I've rebelled against him. But because Christ has authority over your sin and he has forgiven your sin, you have a savior, you have a God who actually has shown you, you can surrender your life to me. You're in good hands. And that's why I suggest to you that, you know what, just seeing his authority over Satan, seeing his authority over the scribes, seeing his authority over the seeker, that's not going to be enough. It's not until you actually realize, man, I have rebelled against this one. And it's not until you actually realize this one has authority over my sin and he's forgiven it. This is a man I can trust. This is a God I want to surrender to. And you know what? I think what we see here, that is true freedom. To be utterly surrendered to a man, to a God who is utterly committed to you. That is good news. That is the gospel. We need this gospel. Amen? We sure do. So, may we find true freedom.
in the true surrender to Christ because he is the one who has given all for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your gospel. And thank you for your authority over Satan. Thank you for your authority over sickness. Thank you for your authority over scribes. Thank you for your authority over seekers. And thank you, most of all, for your authority over sin. We praise you that you have forgiven us. And we praise you, Lord God, that we can fully entrust our lives to you. You are the good author. We know we are in good hands when we submit ourselves to you. So please help us. Help us to repent of ways that we clamor for control, the ways that we resist you. And I pray, God, that we would find the true freedom of surrender to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Go with him.